This is a monumental episode of the Sales Development Podcast, powered by Tenbound, hosted by David Delaney. My name is James Bodden, and I have the distinct pleasure of introducing episode 200 of the Sales Development Podcast with an incredibly exciting guest, Daniel Priestley. He is a four-time author, serial entrepreneur, and one of David's personal heroes. So this episode kicks off with a bang. It starts off with Daniel giving us his advice on early stage businesses and reviews the different phases that entrepreneurs go through when starting a business. Anybody that's currently running a startup thinking about starting a startup needs to tune in right at the beginning of the episode. As we get going into the 15 minute mark, David and Daniel talk about the power of teamwork and dynamics in starting a business as opposed to going alone. Daniel talks about some of the advantages of starting a business with a few people involved right away. At the 20 minute mark, Daniel shares advice to entrepreneurs on the pitfalls of scaling your business. Everybody likes to talk about scaling, scaling, scaling. Daniel gets real with us and talks about some of the realities that come with that. At the 40 minute mark, David and Daniel discuss the tactical approaches Daniel took to building his most recent business, Score App. Now, again, if you're an entrepreneur or thinking about starting a business, Daniel is someone who's done this multiple times and gives us some really tactical advice. As the episode wraps up, Daniel talks about what's next for him, what's next for Score App, and continues to drop some amazing knowledge. Episode 200 of the Sales Development Podcast is chock full of great information from this fantastic interview. So if you enjoy it, make sure that you leave a rating, head over to 10bound.com and celebrate episode 200 of the Sales Development Podcast featuring Daniel Priestley. Enjoy. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Sales Development Podcast. I am honored and blessed to have the guest on the show today, Mr. Daniel Priestley. They say that you never should meet your heroes. And I've met a few of mine, and that's actually pretty good advice. However, there are exceptions, and I have one here today. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? David, it's absolutely wonderful to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, for the listeners who are not familiar with your work, I first heard of Daniel Priestley via the most outlandish referral ever, a guy named Mike Winnett, who <laughs> wrote a documentary called The Contrepreneurial Something. Contrepreneurial Formula or something like yeah, that. Yeah, The Contrepreneurial Formula, which is absolutely hilarious. If you haven't seen it, it's a must for self-help you know, addicts out there. And Mike actually mentioned that he went to an event and one of the speakers who wasn't complete crap was a guy named Daniel Priestley. And Mike is absolutely brutal. So I had to go check out. What's funny is that I couldn't have paid for better marketing because that entire documentary, which was seen by hundreds of thousands of people, just says everyone's terrible except this one guy, Daniel Priestley. He's great but everyone else is terrible. And I'm just sitting there going, oh my goodness, this is such a weird way to be featured. You never could have planned for something like that. (laughs) And so the next stage is I checked out the London Real podcast and the rest is history, right? Because once you go down that rabbit hole, you know, Daniel lives what he speaks. He's got a ton of 
amazing content out there. The thought processes on business, success, personal development are so spot on that I think they'll really change the way you think about these topics in a positive way. And if you're seeking wisdom in these areas, he is one of the top minds in the world. And I've been, you know, a self-improvement, I'll call it addict for many years. And I would put Daniel on the same plane as like Jim Rohn, Dan Sullivan, Darren Hardy. Yeah, I'm serious, man. So I'm almost done. So Daniel's written four books on the topics and I've got them here. You can't really see them and runs several successful companies. He's not just like a talking head and speaks around the globe and on Zoom constantly with the purpose of really helping people succeed. So Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks again for coming on. My absolute pleasure. Great intro. (laughs) (laughs) So Daniel, let's dive in. So, you know, four books, running all these companies. There's so much here. There's so many different topics. I thought where we could start is the graph that you created that really you know, encapsulates the entrepreneurial journey from yeah. concept to assets, and then how each of your books slot in in the various parts. So, what is the entrepreneurial journey? And, you know, so the entrepreneurial journey is this idea that we all go through these predictable phases when we're building a business, and it feels so different and unique to each individual entrepreneur. It feels like no one could possibly understand what it's like to go through this. And then when you zoom out and talk to thousands of entrepreneurs, you realize they're all going through the same stuff. And I wanted to kind of map out the entrepreneurial journey. So on the bottom axis, it's got the team size that you've got. So the team is going to be very different when it's three or four people compared to when it's 30 or 40 people. And there's this kind of axis down the bottom, which is how many people are on the team. And then on the up and down axis, we have revenue per employee, revenue per person. So what you end up with is if you have a very small team with very high revenue per person, let's say you've got five people and you're doing 5 million, right? A million per person, that is going to be a very different business than five people and 200,000 of revenue. So essentially, all the drama that happens is kind of plotted along those two axes. The drama is going to be based on how many people you have and what sort of revenue per person you have. So in this diagram, we have some phases. We have a great phase called startup. Startup is when you don't really have the pressure of making payroll and you don't have the pressure of kind of like running a really disciplined team. You can just have fun and experiment and come up with ideas and spitball and all of those fun things that happen. You're trying to get some money together. You're trying to do proof of concept And, you know, people haven't even noticed you yet. So there's no pressure. It's a fun phase of business. The next phase we call wilderness. Wilderness is where you feel like you are alone in the world. And what on earth have I done? What a mistake. Why on earth did I quit that corporate nice cushy job when suddenly, you know, I'm all by myself and I've got to do everything. I've, you know, if something breaks, I've got to fix it. There's no budgets for anything. You know, everything costs money and I can't go down to the local shops and take hits of the website and say, can I pay my groceries with some hits? All of those things happen. And then you get a little breakthrough and we end up in the boutique phase. And the boutique is three to 12 people. You've got a struggling boutique and a lifestyle boutique. A lifestyle boutique is what most people think of when they think of that fun three to 12 person business that's profitable, punches above its weight. People are excited about it. It feels like you could either 
A, keep it small and be really profitable and have a lot of fun, or B, you could grow it big if you wanted to because so many people are positive about it. We then have a phase called the desert, too big to be small, too small to be big. The team size doesn't really work. Everything that was working is now breaking. People are starting to have fights with each other. Some people are sleeping together. There's all this weirdness. This is normally between 13 and 50 people. And then there's the performance business, which is the 50-person and upwards business, where your entrepreneurial business has now taken shape. There are 50 people on the team. You've sorted out a lot of the problems. You've got regular meetings in place. You've got some great assets that the business has developed. You've got proprietary information or data. You've got proprietary assets. People are talking about the business has a valuation now. You could sell it if you wanted to sell it. You could scale it. You could crank the handle and grow it. You've probably got a management, a leadership team in place that's functioning at that point. So all of these kind of grown-up things start to happen around that. That was just a kind of whistle-stop tour of the whole entrepreneurial journey. But you know, each phase is an emotional roller coaster that people go through. And I wanted to map it out and kind of give people direction as to what to do at each phase. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I've especially I've lived this over the last five years, but I had no idea that this chart was here. So it's like, and I noticed that the wilderness is the longest sort of phase. And is that where some companies finally, before they can get to struggling boutique, they just I actually die. Yeah. I made it long because so many businesses by number are actually there. You can actually skip it. You can skip the wilderness. Every business I've ever started, we skip the wilderness. So I've had seven different startups. And the way you skip the wilderness is just put together a team of three people on day one. So as soon as you've got three people and you've got a plan for generating a bit of revenue, you're now in the boutique phase. And you can go from startup straight into boutique. And I really recommend that, you know, because part of the wilderness is that there's no team dynamic at play. It's just you and a co-founder. And really, you feel like completely lost and you have no idea how you would get yourself to having a team in place and all the kind of stuff that goes with the business. So if you look out there in the world, something like 75% of all businesses out there have no employees and they just kind of wondering how the hell do you create a breakthrough that gets you to the point where you could, you know, get some help. So So we just saved everybody like five years. Yeah. Skip that. Skip that whole phase. Have you watched Netflix documentaries about bank robberies? Have you ever watched a bank robbery documentary or something like that? Oh, in general? Or or, yeah, in general. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. So a great bank robbery is they're sitting around and they've got two big pizzas. And there's three or four of them, and they've got beer and pizza, and they've got a big notepad, big drawing notepad. And they've kind of like done a hand-drawn diagram of the bank, and they start mapping out what time the guards change and what to, like which is the exits and how many people are typically in the bank at 9 o'clock in the morning versus 11, right? And they're mapping out all the problems that they're going to face in the bank robbery, and they're figuring out how we're going to work together to rob the bank and how much we're going to split, right? So what's the split going to be after we successfully rob the bank? And sometimes they've got their little Lego cars and all that sort of stuff. And and if you watch on Netflix, there are some great documentaries about bank robberies. And that is exactly what it's like to have a successful startup where you're going through and you're just going straight into, let's get a team of people, smart people around some food, and let's talk about all the problems we might encounter And let's figure out what we might do to successfully generate an initial campaign, get some money and split it. 
that's a great way to start a business that skips the whole wilderness phase. Oh, okay. So number one, are they all in from day one? So there's burning the ships, we're going in, we're doing this. And then who is at the table? Because I know that that goes into, you know, one of your main concepts, which, you know, you've got this cast of characters that you bring from company to company. Yeah. So there's typically four roles. There's four or five classic roles that a business has. And you'll have someone who's the visionary, who's the leader of the show, and we'll call that the CEO. You've got someone who's very operational. They're very hands-on, detail and we'll call that the COO, the person who fixes everything and figures everything out. You've got the person who's really good at picking up the phone and making sales. So we'll call them the CMO or the salesperson. And then you've got someone who's probably able to manage the money or able to keep track of finances and and money. Now, if it's your absolute first go, you're probably going to have two co-founders and two people who are on a performance deal. So the finance person might be just purely and simply a bookkeeper who's getting paid an hourly rate, right? So that could be as simple as that. Or it might be someone who's got a really boring finance job and they're looking for some excitement and they're happy to sit in just because it's exciting and it's fun. And literally, they're just going to lend some idea and some talent to the business. And you might say, when we get around to it, we'll pay you a grant, (laughs) right? Like (laughs) we'll send you some money or something like that. Or we'll give you some shares, like once we figure it out. And then you've got the salesperson who might say, if you can send me some leads, I'll close some sales and I'll get on the phone and talk to some people. So that typically is first time around. As you become more successful, you've had some exits. You don't necessarily need to jump through those hoops anymore. You could just simply assemble a team. You could have a great team. You could They're going to believe that the company is going to be worth something and that it's going to have some cash kicking around. So you can just simply say either A, this is what you'll end up getting paid once we launch. Or B, your normal market rate would be part-time, 40000 So I'm just going to issue you 40000 worth of shares in the first 12 months. Once we have some professional investors and we've got a valuation, we're going to issue some stock to you based upon how many hours and how much time and energy you put into the business. You know, So those are the types of options that you've got available to you second time around, third time around. Right. And so but what you usually see is they're in the concept stage. And they're trying to figure all this out themselves as like a solopreneur and or maybe with a partner, right? And that's how they stay so. It's kind of like, imagine we said, look, the way I'm going to play football is I'm going to run onto the field by myself and I'm going to come up with some plays. I'm going to score some touchdowns. And then once I've scored some touchdowns, I'm going to then recruit another second person. And then once we score some touchdowns, then I'll recruit a third person. And it's like, it's just not how it is. You've got to figure out, you know, football is a minimum five-a-side. So you've got to say, all right, I've got to put together my five-a-side team first. I can't run onto the field if I don't have, if we're playing five-a-side football, you know, there's no such thing as just simply running on with one person and hoping that you'll score some goals. And you ask the question about, do you need to be all in? You absolutely do not need to be all in at the beginning. No, there's no question you should be skeptical. You should be basically the default assumption when you're starting a business is you should say the world probably doesn't need this. Someone's probably doing it way better than we're committed to doing it. Customers are solving this in some way, you know, that's working for them or they don't need it solved. Like they don't care that much. Now, what you're trying to do is as fast as humanly possible, you're trying to figure out what are all the reasons why we should avoid this thing and do something else. You know, like, let's figure out real fast if we are completely flogging a dead horse here, 
And the best businesses are almost like begrudging startups where you're like, really? Is no one doing this? And like, is it really going to have to be us who fixes this problem? And it's kind of like, hmm, okay. It's one of these ones where you want to push it aside, but it's like it keeps coming up and you think to yourself, you know what? I really feel like someone needs to do this. Maybe it should be us. Yeah. And you kind of, you have this kind of skepticism where you go, I must be missing something. There must be some stupid thing that I'm missing. And you go out and check and the market says, no, no, you're not stupid. We would love that solved. And you go, really? And then you like host a little event and it's like you put on an event and it's a Zoom event and maybe 30 people jump in and you present to them and you ask for expressions of interest. Would you be interested in this? And they go, yeah, we really would. And you go, really? You guys really want, you guys actually want this? All right, fair enough, we'll do it. And so I'm thinking a lot of entrepreneurs are trying to solve a problem that they're interested in and get into something that they're interested in. And what you're saying is, not necessarily. It's obviously what the customers are keep telling you, even if you don't even want to do it. Yeah, completely. The customers, you need a market. You need to have something. You know, entrepreneurs exist to solve meaningful problems. That's what we're here to do. We're here to build a commercially successful business around a meaningful problem that people have. And in most cases, the default assumption should be that if it mattered, people would have solved it. And if it mattered, they would have like, you know, put something together with sticky tape and there would be something holding that need together that kind of works. And you've got to kind of assume that it's 2022. We've had 200 years of the industrial age. Most products and services that need to be invented have already been invented, you know, so essentially. And also most businesses that exist have probably run pretty well. So, you know, there's only a few assumptions, which is something has not yet been invented that needs to be invented, or the businesses that exist in this space that run really, really badly. There's some sort of something preventing them from scaling up to the expectations of the client. So effectively, if it's being run well and it already exists, then what are you going to add to it? Okay. And it's interesting because the term boutique or, you know, a lifestyle business is almost like a dirty word in Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley, yeah. Right. Everybody wants to go from concept to all the way to the right and massive scale immediately. Unicorn, and yeah. It's interesting because you bifurcate those into there's a lifestyle boutique and a yeah. struggling boutique. So what's the difference between those two? It's revenue. So a lifestyle boutique is doing really high revenue per employee, or they're really well funded and you know, they've got traction and basically people are throwing money at them in one form or another. They can easily pay good people and they can engage good people around them. And it's three to 12 people who are crushing it, doing really well. Now, I'll tell you the classic lifestyle boutique that you'll all recognize straight away. The person who writes a best-selling book and they have a small consultancy, they give talks, they give podcasts, they do consulting projects, high-end consulting projects, and they get brought in on the really fun stuff that they're really good at. And like, you know, you might have, like, for example, a Tim Ferriss or those types of people, Eric Reese, who they've written a book and they get brought in to speak at fun things. They get brought in to consult on fun things and solve fun problems. And they've got their little gang of rebels who hang around with them. And basically there's 12 of them and they all kind of speak the same lingo and hang out at the same places. And they write on a lot of bigger companies' coattails 
and they're making great money. So maybe there's 12 of them and they're making $5 million and there's plenty of money to go around or 5 million and up, right? So there's plenty of money to go around and they're having a good fun time. And so you're saying, you know, everyone's so focused on that hyperscale and massive, you know, valuations and all that stuff. And it's interesting because it's almost, you can have a better life. I mean, you can have time oh, yeah, yeah, much better life to, versus having your time owned by all these different people. So. Yeah. As soon as you start going beyond the 12 people, here's the thing. The human brain is really good at managing teams of 12 people. If you have a dinner party with 12 people or less, it's going to be effortless, right? So I recently just went to a dinner party with some friends. I think there was seven or eight of us and it was one conversation and we like it just effortlessly flowed. And it was all of us sitting around one table having one conversation and it was so lovely and so easy to manage. Had that gone to 13 people, it, I guarantee you it would have been two or three conversations and it would have been work. You would have had to figure out how to get the group together and, you know, it's time to sit down and who's going to sit where and all these kind of things start. Like it just doesn't naturally flow the way it does when it's a smaller group. So 13 and upwards always splits into two or three different groups. And then that requires management leadership. And then once you have management leadership requirements, you now have the cost of management leadership sitting on a fairly small base of productive people. So you enter a phase that's too big to be small, too small to be big. In order to solve that problem, you raise money. Once you raise money, you end up with outside influence who really want to pressure you to give them a return. You know, professional investors, they have to be professional assholes. They have to be because the really, really, really lovely investor normally doesn't get paid. They normally get squeezed. So the investor who is really driving the team towards valuation and really becoming a pain and a thorn in your side, the minute you can afford to exit them for a big amount of money, you're going to exit the one who's the pain in the ass. That person who has a mandated board seat and who turns up to every board meeting with a long list of all the things that they're critical of and they want to second guess every decision and they drive you crazy that's the person who gets paid first. It's incredible. The person that you hate the most is normally the one that is able to cash out as fast and as quickly as possible. It's often people who you hate who get paid the most when it comes to fast growth startups. Okay. Well, so are you, I mean, are you at the point where do you still get involved with these people or can you put together the, the enough of an investment to be able to do it yourself? I mean, I don't want to, you know. Yeah, yeah. no. So for me you, personally, yeah. what do you think? I bring in entrepreneurs that I like. Like for me personally, my companies I'm involved in, I'll bring in angel investor entrepreneurs who I like, who I have a track record with, who I know that they're out there making money in other ways and they're not trying to sit on boards to squeeze a capital return out. So I've got a cadre of entrepreneurs that I've gone on a couple of journeys with and we go on journeys together and we invest in each other's companies and it's all pretty friendly. But mind you, I'm not building unicorn valuations. I'm having a lot of fun. So I have 50 to 100 people on my teams and I'm personally much more interested in the idea of building a business. So there's, I should say this, there's unicorn, which is Silicon Valley, you know, the classic Silicon Valley approach. There's also what I would call performance businesses. Performance businesses are 50 to 150 people typically. They get bought for strategic reasons. And they often very quietly get bought up for millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions. They're never really unicorns. But I can tell you straight up, 
that you can actually earn a lot of money selling a business that is 60 people and you know that hasn't yet taken on huge amounts of VC or you know private equity capital. If you sell to a company that's private equity backed and they have a whole plan for how to exit you and then how to get you to leave some money on the table while they continue to triple the value of the business, you know, I know plenty of people who sell their company to a private equity backed business, they get a headline number of 30 million, they take 12 off the table and leave 18 in, and then they get another 12 off the table and they leave some more in and they get another 12 off the table and they leave some more in. And the thing keeps rolling forward. And every time they do a roll up or an exit, they're essentially treated like a limited partner and they get a private equity backed return. And we all see the headline Google or unicorn But what you don't realize is that every single one of those unicorns that you're seeing, they are spitting out millionaires who are basically small strategic companies that get acquired and get a combination of cash and shares as they roll up. Most of those businesses are doing an acquisition every month or every two months, and they're loving little opportunities to hoover up 50 to 150 people who have a particular strategic fit. Okay. And so, and now we're further over on the right side of the continuum. Yeah. We're beyond lifestyle boutique to. We're in performance land, yeah. So, the smallest companies that are a performance business tend to be 35. It tends to be on the very, very, very small side. If you're a performance business that has a valuation that could be private equity backed or VC backed or strategic acquired, it tends to be that you, you become a serious team when you're about 35 and up. And just to break the fourth wall here, can you guys believe that for free, you can tune into stuff like this on YouTube or something like that and learn from a master here that explains everything? I'm just blown away. But like, and you've said it before, Daniel, there's kind of two sides of the coin of 2022 social you know, media. There's You can learn from this master who has gone through all this and can save you five years, but at the same time, you can go down a negative rabbit hole and, you know, ruin your day. So anyways, I just wanted to <laughs> throw that out there. You're very kind, David. I could sit on here all day just listening to you. <laughs> well, I'll let Being you go. The master. Yeah, <laughs> at the feet of the master. It was funny. I didn't mention it, but I was on a webinar with you through Dent Global, which I want to talk about. And I asked a question. I was like, we were talking about value propositions and mine's really complicated and it's hard to just explain, you know, in five seconds. And you got on and said, David, you know, something to the effect that they put the expensive liquor on the top shelf because it's hard to get there. This isn't easy, you know, (laughs) this is hard. And that's why entrepreneurs who make it are richly rewarded. So I thought that was funny. (laughs) I don't even know if you remember that, but that was a couple of months ago. You mentioned on Twitter that 7% of businesses, only 7% of businesses make it to a million dollars in revenue, which is crazy. So I look at the wilderness and it's like, there's all these dead bodies out there, you know, skeletons and things like that. 7%, that seems. Well, it seems, it's funny because Mm -hmm. you live in a bubble, right? You live in the Silicon Valley bubble and you never in hear about bubble. failures. You never hear yeah. about, you know, people, it's all raising, raising, raising. It's like musical chairs. Exactly. Right. That's what's happening in that bubble. But when you actually just peel back the layers on revenue, it's 7% actually get a million dollars of revenue. That's it. 
crazy. That's crazy. So there's two things I want to ask you about. So revenue per employee is like your key metric. You come back to that a lot. And then I also want to ask you about giveaway information and charge for implementation. And so there are two kind of different things, but why do you always come back to revenue per employee? Because not that you mentioned, like you Google that and you don't get many responses. No, hardly anything. So the reason I think about revenue per employee is because revenue per employee is the output. It's the result of having an asset, some sort of a business asset. So for example, let's imagine I, I saw a team of three young guys and they're doing $5 million of revenue. And I'm like, how are you guys doing that? It doesn't seem right. Something's going on, right? So all I know is that they're a team of three, full-time they're a team of three, and there's $5 million that the business is spitting out of revenue. Why? How's that happening? Well, there must be an underlying asset. They've got some asset that's sitting in that business. So the question is, what's the asset? And if they said to me, well, the asset is, is that we bought a database, a million records, an email database of a million people. And we there was a company that went bankrupt and we were able to acquire the database of a million people. We just pick a product and we sell them that product to that data. Ah, okay. So there's an underlying asset called a database. It's like, okay, well, that's one of the assets. Or they could say, actually, one of us used to be you know, the founder of a, a multi-billion dollar company and we won huge amounts of awards and we did all of this. And people want to access that intellectual property as to how we did it. Oh, okay. So there's intellectual property assets sitting under there. So there will always be some sort of an asset sitting underneath revenue per person. If you don't have assets, let's say you get someone with a bucket and a mop and a sponge and they're washing people's cars. That means there is almost a, you could have anyone, you could take Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, you could take Michael Jordan, right? And they're still only going to earn 20 bucks an hour cleaning cars because they don't have the underlying assets that they normally trade from. So when I'm looking at revenue per person, I'm actually not looking at the revenue or the people. I'm looking at the underlying asset. It's pointing. You can imagine those two things are actually pointing towards a truth. And the truth is, what's the asset that's sitting inside the business? So I'm looking for revenue per person as an indicator for building something that is a valuable asset. Now, when you want revenue per person to go up, then you need to have a bigger and bigger asset sitting inside the business. So when we look at the world's most highest revenue per person companies, Facebook, Google, Tesla, you know, these are the companies that have just unbelievable assets, brand assets, culture assets, intellectual property, systems, processes, algorithms. So they are putting together just a constant barrage of high value assets that they are then able to earn great money from. Right. And so, you know, in the continuum from the old days, it was the assets were land and the king and and gentry, you know, they had all the assets and then it became the steam engine and, you know, the industrial. Now it's like you gave, I think an example, Google maps, you know, what a valuable asset given away for free and keeps us coming back day after day. Yeah. So this is a great truth, right? So we had the industrial age, the agricultural age. So the primary asset for agriculture is land. The primary asset for industrial age is factories. And then the primary asset for the age that we're in right now is digital. So it's digital assets. So what are the digital assets? The big ones is called intellectual property and data. So the more data you have, it's like owning land. 
and the more intellectual property that you have. And intellectual property can be things like methodologies or algorithms. They, they can be things like trademarks, patents. So the big ones now are soft assets. And the accounting profession hasn't actually caught up with how to value these or how to think about these. So for example, there's a huge asset called culture, organizational culture. And that asset is that you have a company that really talented people want to come and work for, and they're willing to take a pay cut in order to come and work there. So for example, plenty of talented people will take a pay cut to go work at Google, right, as a classic example. So the idea is, is that culture, that culture asset, that good people, talented people come and work in this company and achieve great things together. It's an intangible thing, but it's actually, it's one of the most valuable assets on the planet. So where we are right now, if you imagine the transition between agricultural age and industrial age, imagine someone who only has ever understood how to value farming land, and they just cannot understand why a small footprint factory would be worth more than a vast farming land agricultural farm. So they're sitting there going, I just don't get it. You know, you've got this factory and it's not that big. It's nowhere near as big as a farm. Why would that be worth more in the economy than, you know, a large tract of land? And it's the same. Why would something completely invisible like culture or intellectual property or data be worth more than a factory? And that's because we're living in a different age. And so, and it's like, you're going to get left behind if you don't understand it. And, you know, that's essentially what happens. There's all these societal changes that happen and we won't go there, but it's like, you can either try to educate yourself and stay ahead of it. It's even happening now going to crypto. It's happening now. Yeah, yeah exactly. We call it income inequality now. So we exactly. call it income inequality, but it's technology inequality or it's the inequality of thinking that you're in the industrial age when you're in the digital age. So let's say you're riding a triathlon, you're in a triathlon and you're in the marathon section of the triathlon, you're running with a pair of running shoes and then you cross a line and it's suddenly it's time to get on the bike and start riding the bike, but you didn't get the memo and you keep running, but the person you're competing against got the memo and they're on a bike now and they're using a piece of technology that you're not using no matter how hard you run, there's going to become an inequality between your time and their time. And the inequality, the gap starts to widen and widen and widen. Now you can talk about, oh, that's so unfair and it's just not right. And there's something wrong here and no one should be able to go that fast. No runner should be able to go as fast as that. And it's like, well, they're not a runner. They're on a bike. They're using technology that the other person's not using. And, and that's what's causing the inequality. So if we look at it right now, why are some people earning half a million a year and other people struggle to make 50 grand a year? And why are some people making 5 million a year and others struggle to make 500,000? It's really, it comes down to the bike that they're on, which is the technology. They're either leveraging that bike really, really well, and they're firmly on the bike, or they're just not on the bike. And they're wondering what could possibly be going wrong. And just going back, I mean, we have this amazing technology where you can educate yourself and, you know, learn, <laughs> learn about what's going on in the world, really. And it's out there for free. And that's the positive side of it. And It is. And that's part of being on the bike. Part of being on the bike is that you're on this constant education and learning how these things work. Yeah, because the swim is coming up after the bike. So you better be <laughs> yeah. ready for it. It's such a quick segue because the score app, it's a perfect. And why am I telling you this? You know this. It's a perfect blend of IP and data. 
and being able to really use that and then put it into the product and services. And we've used it here at 10bound and it's had been super successful. So can you tell us how you put this into the score app? um, Do you want the the long version or the quick version? I mean, you know, I (laughs) let me somehow do it as moderately as I can. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing transition because yeah. Tell us how did you get into that? Yeah. So I watched the U S presidential elections and the U S elections always tell me some of the biggest marketing trends that are coming. So, for example, FDR did a fireside chat, which introduced radio over the airways. JFK did a televised debate, which introduced live television as a major marketing trend. And then Obama did social media as a major marketing trend where he dominated social media marketing. And then finally, what we saw with Trump was that there was use of a a firm called Cambridge Analytica. And this is, by the way, this is not political. This is technological, right? So I'm not trying to make any political statement here. I'm just saying that around that particular time, I became aware of Cambridge Analytica. So I had a look at what does Cambridge Analytica actually do? And what they did is they asked people to fill in a quick quiz and people answered like 12 questions and they then went into a prize draw and they got a chance to win some tickets to football or something like that or win a cash prize. And that's how they got people to fill in these quizzes. But what they really did is that they figured out what kind of voter you might be using something called the ocean graph, which is a personality trait profiling system. By answering those questions, they used that data to figure out whether you were going to be likely to vote for which candidate you'd be likely to vote for, whether you were suggestible, whether you could go either way. Once they figured out who were the types of people who were suggestible, they took that list of people using their email addresses and they created lookalike audiences on Facebook so that you could then find more people who were very similar to these ones. So they'd let AI algorithms do the work. And then once they had large lists of people who were highly suggestible, they just put all of their ad budget and they put a huge campaign into just trying to work with that group of people who were on the fence, you could say. So this was pretty mind-blowing at the time, right? If you imagine, you know, when I first heard about this, I thought, oh my goodness, I know that the US presidential elections drive trends in marketing, but how are people going to, how are people going to do this? How are they going to collect data and segment and then remarket and do all that? And I thought to myself, this is such a big trend, a big transformational trend The people who are most likely to get left behind with this are going to be small businesses. Mostly the big businesses will figure this out, but the small businesses are going to have a really hard time. So I thought, how do I create a tool that allows any small business to become a data-centric business where they're capturing data and then they're harnessing and leveraging that data? So what we did is we created a quiz engine where people can set up their own quiz, a landing page, a questionnaire, and then a report so they can actually generate reports. And then behind the scenes, we added in things like Google tracking, Facebook ID, Facebook links, and some of the more sophisticated marketing tools. And what we did is we allowed small businesses to create fun quizzes about what they do to diagnose and to segment their marketplace and to segment their buyers. For the customer, the person who's taking the quiz, it's a fast quiz that allows them to very quickly get a report and learn something about themselves. And then for the small business, it's a tool for generating marketing results and improving their marketing. And I've made it, it probably sounds complicated, but it's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to create something that's as simple and as intuitive as social media, 
but for the data marketing era, for the people who people who are never going to understand highly complex, hyper-targeted marketing algorithms and all that sort of stuff, but they're going to understand this. And we're creating just a fun, easy way for small businesses to market themselves using quizzes. It's interesting because people always say, listen to your customers, you know, get feedback from the customers and then, you know, mold your solutions to what they say. But the customer, how do you do that? (laughs) I mean, do you do do interviews? Do you do focus groups? And what's great about this is that it gives them a very valuable report at the end of just a, a few minutes of taking the quiz that they can actually use to think about some weak spots that they have in their program in our case. Yeah. So like, for example, let me kind of have an example. There's a, one of our clients, they're called Bunky Life. Bunky Life, they create these cabins in the woods and it's, you don't need a permit, right? You can just build a cabin yourself in a weekend. And they sell lots of these, right? Prefabricated cabins in the woods and you can literally carry them. You carry all the materials out to your little spot in the woods and you build yourself a cabin in the woods. So they created a quiz called, are you ready for the Bunky Life? And they identify whether you're, you have the building skills to build it, whether you have the land, whether you have the time to enjoy it. There's all these kind of things that go into enjoying the monkey life. And you answer, I think, 16 questions, and then it gives you a score as to whether you're ready for a bunky. And they generated, in their first campaign, they generated 14,000 leads and they generated $3.5 million worth of bunkies, which was half their revenue. So when people could diagnose what was the problem stopping them from having a bunkie and they could see, okay, how do you solve that problem? So if the problem is I don't have the building skills, it actually, the quiz tells you your building skills need to improve. You might need to take someone with you who's got some better building skills. If you'd like us to help you, we can find you a builder or we can give you the video series that you can watch in advance so that you can actually plan and prepare more than most. So it actually talks you through how to solve that particular problem. Now, when you're talking to a customer and they haven't taken a quiz, you don't know what's stopping them, right? There could be one of six different reasons that's stopping them from buying the bunkie. And it could be that they don't have enough time to enjoy it, or they haven't got a plot of land, or they don't have the building skills, right? There's all sorts of reasons why they may not buy that particular product. But once they've taken the quiz, you just pinpoint exactly oh, this is why you're, this is the problem. Let's solve that. And then they buy. As soon as they've solved it, they buy the thing. Right, exactly. And it reshaped our business in a couple of ways. One that we put a lot of the onus before using the quiz on the customer to, we'd give them some training and some playbooks and some coaching and then kind of work with them. And it was just, a lot of it was on the customer to do. And now we realize that and this is directly from reading your material, we realize they don't necessarily want advice and, you know, how to's and all these things. They just want someone to do it, you know, to implement for them and take, take this problem off their plate. And since we launched that, the business has skyrocketed, you know, and so this is very valuable. Yeah. And as a coach, you're going to have a very different conversation with someone who's a startup and maybe there's less than five people. Or if someone answers a quiz, let's say one of the questions on your quiz is, do you have a team of more than 50 people? And they go, yes. Well, that's going to be pick up the phone and have a chat with them about a done for you solution. Let us just come in and do this for you. Do you have a team of less than five people? Yeah, we've got a team of less than five. Well, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to afford to have someone do it for you just yet. Or you might ask the question, have you got external funding? 
yes, we do have funding. Great. Let us just pay us and we'll do it all for you. Exactly. Oh, my God. So you can put those questions into your quiz. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's literally like, I don't know, our pricing page is do it yourself, do it with you and do it for you. And, you know, they can choose really. And, you know, based on who's taking the quiz and where they are in it. So that's been super helpful. So let me ask you this, Dent Global, just to shift gears. And I know that we're up against the time. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about how did you come up with Dent Global and helping all these entrepreneurs and what does it do? So the quote that I loved from Steve Jobs was, Steve Jobs said in the early days when he was in his early 20s, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you should try to make a dent in the universe or else why even bother? And it was just this kind of like where it's kind of this idea of being up to something. It's having a purpose beyond making money. It's being in business because you want to have an impact in the world. You want to do something and it's not purely commercial. It's something that you feel a calling towards making your dent in the universe. So I really loved that quote. And when he passed away in 2010, I had this idea that I really wanted to take entrepreneurs on a journey of standing out, scaling up and making their dent in the universe. So I'd been writing some books and I'd been giving some talks and it just started culminating into what is now a global accelerator program. So we have a phenomenal mentoring team. We've got an office in London, in Toronto and in Sydney, Australia. And we basically take a lot of entrepreneurs who are in the boutique phase and we help them either move towards being a lifestyle boutique or getting ready to scale up and become a performance business. We've got a series of methodologies. So we've got something called the chaos method, which is concept audience offer sales. And we have another one, which is the key person of influence method, which is pitch, publish, product, profile, partnership. So what we do is we break those into little modules and we do training and development. And then we do cohorts of accountability groups of seven entrepreneurs who report into each other every month. And we also do introductions for things like funding or services or technology that would help scale. So we've had three and a half thousand companies come through globally. We've got a you know amazing track record of great successful companies and really happy founders. You know, one of the things that we're measuring for is not necessarily, you know, billion dollar exits. We're very much interested in people who are happy founders, you know, they're enjoying their company. Outside of Silicon Valley, most people actually don't want to create a unicorn. Most people just want to create a really fun and profitable business. And there's a gazillion podcasts that you could listen to about creating a unicorn. So this is for everybody else. And then it's a huge number. I mean, one of the things that interesting about Dent Global is that it's not necessarily like two recent college grads who were just geniuses of software engineering, and now they join Y Combinator and, you know, that path, because that's all that you hear of. You're dealing with people that are, have ongoing business. They're in their 40s. Most of our clients are in their 40s or early 50s. So I, do, I don't, most people don't know that, don't know that the average age of a fast growth startup is the founder is 42. So if you do look at unicorns, if you do look at companies that are super successful, if you look at companies that hire people, that become profitable, that sell, the average age is 42 when the founder started it and 57 when they exited. So it's around a 15-year journey that starts at 42 and goes for 15 years. That's the most common example. If you were to go down and talk to a wealth manager at a private bank where they manage the wealth of high net worth individuals and ultra high net worth individuals and say to them, who is the most common story that, that walks through the door with a huge amounts of money? 
they're not going to say 22-year-olds who can code. They're not going to say a 27-year-old who just IPO'd their company. That's not what they're going to say. They're going to say it's a 57-year-old who started when they're 42, spent 15 years building a business and then sold to a public listed company or a private equity-backed group, and they're now independently wealthy. That's the most common example. So we've built our accelerator very much for that use case. Oh, yeah. And this is why I love talking to Daniel. Yes, I can still make it. I still have time. Okay. (laughs) You're only just getting started. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Thank you. And, you know, because it's like in Silicon Valley, you know, if you're past, you know, 35, I mean, you're done, you know. Yeah, if you don't have a billion for every age that you've been on the planet. (laughs) What's wrong with you? You What have you been doing? (laughs) Exactly. Okay. Just got a couple minutes. One last question. So Daniel, you have companies, you've got a young family, your health to look after, your stress has got to be, you know, through the roof at times. The world is melting down around us. How do you keep everything straight and not, you know, go off the deep end? Or do you? I mean, you know, uh, to be, you ever to melt be down? honest, look, honestly, I don't. Okay. I'm pretty chill. So we've had, you know, if there was going to be a go off the deep end moment, it would have happened in the last couple of years because there's been plenty of reasons to go off the deep end in the last couple of years. And absolutely, I don't say, you know, the trick for me is I've got an amazing team. I honestly believe everything is a team sport. So my house runs based on a really amazing team. So we have, you know, a great nanny and a great cleaner. And a lot of the stress that happens around the house is removed through having a team. And then the company runs because we've got a great management team and, you know, our office in Sydney has got a really incredible core team over there. And our office in Toronto has got an incredible core team. There are seven companies in the group. So each one of those companies has a really great number one and number two, and then they've got a extended core team of people. So essentially I see myself as a resource to the companies. My job is to almost coach, mentor and connect. And it's just being a resource to the business. And then the the final thing I mentioned would be a combination of two things. Number one, writing is a really great discipline for being able to unpack your head and just make sense of the world. So the reason I've written four books is really I just kind of wanted to unpack my own learnings and lessons and put them into a format where I could review it and think about it. And then finally, there's this philosophy called Stoicism. And Stoicism is a very ancient philosophy. And it's essentially, you know, there are certain principles. And one of the principles is that you really try to avoid worrying about things that you don't have much control over. So, you know, if, for example, there is a global pandemic, but you're not well suited for handling a global pandemic, and you're not involved in policy, and you're not involved in, you know, healthcare or any of those kind of things, then this is just not something to worry about because you could easily spend all your time and energy thinking about it, but it doesn't really make much of a difference. No one cares what you think and you don't have any influence over it. So therefore, you choose a very narrow set of things that you do have influence over, such as your own personal decisions. You make some decisions based on that and then you live with it (laughs) and you get on with, you just narrow your focus back onto what you've got influence over. So stoicism has been a really great set of principles over the last two or three years where I've just simply said, that's just not my problem to solve. That's not for me to learn about or do anything with. There's nothing for me to do there. These are the ways that it impacts my life. And these are the ways that I can impact that thing. So there we go. Job done. Very free. 
Yeah, it's very freeing. It's like they figured this out 3,000 years ago. What? <laughs> yeah, before smartphones as well. Right, I know. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. And so you truly are the key person of influence for your sphere, your empire, you know, that you've built and the team aspect and then a solid stoic philosophy. And, you know, I'm sure that you've got good days and bad days, but it really seems like you keep it all together. So it's amazing. (laughs) Thanks, David. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe you'll never talk to me again, but on our next one, I want to really dig in. I kind of wish I asked you that question first, because there's so much to unpack, you know, with your personal philosophy beyond the business philosophy that you put out, Daniel. Yeah, anytime. I have to talk about it. I keep my personal philosophy on my desk. (laughs) I have, like it says, my vision, mission, values, and targets. So that's always just on the desk right there in front of me. It's basically, it says, I measure my life based on meaningful relationships, purposeful work, memorable experiences, and my ability to sustain it. And then it just goes through, you know, my vision is to get entrepreneurs solving meaningful problems. I develop entrepreneurs who stand out, scale up, and make a dent in the universe who solve United Nations global goals. So basically, I've kept it really simple and largely... If it doesn't relate to those things, then I just don't have to give it much attention. Yes. Oh, I love it. Okay. And I want to dive into that because I was not aware of the UN global goals and how you're positioning everything to, you know, focus on those things that can make a huge impact. And so let's dive in on that (laughs) on the next episode of the Sales Development Podcast. That would be amazing. And I like how it's on one sheet so you can refer back to it. Total pleasure. Yeah. Daniel, well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom. I would, again, encourage everyone to make it over to Dent Global, check out Score app and connect with Daniel. What's the best way if they want to learn more about you? I would say go to YouTube also, because there's a lot of great interviews. Yeah. A lot of people start with the book Entrepreneur Revolution which is kind of the book that I wrote about the fact that the world is moving into a very different age and what to do about it. I wrote that book in 2010. And so like a lot, like everything that was in the book talked about remote working, cloud computing, and just a different way of organizing people and teams and different goals for society. So a lot of people start with that or key person of influence. So yeah, just checking out, maybe have a look at some of those books. That's amazing. I mean, the entrepreneurial revolution is as clear and crystal clear. I didn't realize it, it, it came out that long ago. Yeah. Version one was like, was very soon after things like the iPhone. And we were only a couple of years after the iPhone and social media. And uh, no, I just basically said, that's it. That's the beginning that <laughs> the beginning of the world is transformed. I think it even mentions like cryptocurrencies and stuff like that in there. So I was geeking out on all that stuff at the time and thinking the whole world is going to change. This is as fundamental a shift as agriculture to industrial age. We're going to need a new school system. We're going to need a new healthcare system. We're going to need a new travel system, a new living system, new entertainment. There's going to be new conflicts. So it was just kind of like, all right, better start thinking about this and write it all down. Everybody needs to go pick it up. It is coming to pass as we speak. So go out and pick up, start with that one. That one's great. And it's also on Audible or, you know, audiobooks. Some of your books are read by a narrator who's great. I mean, he's got a great, you know, way of doing it, but some are read by you, which are always great too. So before I was at all known, my publisher didn't like my Australian accent. And I could just tell, just did not like my Australian accent. <laughs> because and the reason I know that 
is because they hired the most British sounding person that you could possibly hire. When I was growing up in Australia, and it's like, I can tell that you were not growing up in Australia. (laughs) So basically, so the later books, once I had sold some books, then they went, okay, all right, well, you can go on there and do your Australian accent. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, I always like it better when the author reads it, but that's just me. So, (laughs) well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hang on after we stop the recording. I just want to thank you again. And thanks for coming on the Sales Development Podcast. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Sales Development Podcast, the only audio forum 100% focused and dedicated to sales development with your host, David Delaney. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube and take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. Your support makes our show possible. If you are struggling with your sales development program, contact us at 10bound.com for a no-obligation exploratory call. Again, that's 10bound.com.